Hi, I'm Justin Rosso, and welcome to this episode of the Next Step Press podcast, where we help you take a next step. Today, I'm joined by Conrad Gump from the London School of Theology, and we'll be looking at Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. That's the third hymn in the When From Death I'm Free hymn journal for Holy Week from Next Step Press. You'll find the material for this chapter beginning on page 27. Conrad will read the scripture, I'll read the devotion, he and I will talk about the contrasts in the text, and then we'll get to dig a little bit deeper into who these Pharisees were and why they're different from the Sadducees and why all of that matters for our faith in life. Ultimately, we get to ask the question, what verdict is Jesus overturning in our lives and how does that help us take a next step? So welcome. I'm glad you're here. It's so good to be with you as we take a next step together. I am still in Brighton, Michigan, sheltering in place uh, by order of my state governor, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Conrad Gumpf today. Conrad, where in the world are you? I'm sheltering in a suburb of London, England, by order of my prime minister, um, uh, Yeah, with a, a state-approved sheltering. Uh. And uh, how has how has this pandemic uh, affected the London School of Theology there where you teach? Well, we've moved all of our classes to online via Zoom, and we're trying to think of alternative means of assessment for some of them. It's been mm. quite a shakeup. Mm. How, how's the teaching online going? It's difficult. It's definitely singing the Lord's song in a foreign land. <laughs> To talk about the incarnate Lord to a virtual audience is very difficult. <laughs> well, I'm glad you get to talk about the incarnate Lord with our virtual audience today, Conrad. Hey, before we get to our scripture lesson, let's pray together. Come Holy Spirit and open our hearts, our lives, our minds to what you would have us receive today. In this time, a strange time in our world, would you please be present with your people would you cause us to be light in the darkness? Would you uh, bring healing and protection? Lord, we commend our families, our homes, our workplaces, our world to your care and to your keeping. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 19. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you even now had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That, of course, is the, the Palm Sunday account. Reading it this time through, Conrad, is there anything that kind of grabbed your attention? Well, there's this incredible contrast, isn't there, between mm -hmm. the rejoicing and praising of the disciples who think that they've found in Jesus a king, and then Jesus' own attitude, which is 
weeping and sadness and telling them that they didn't know the time of his visitation, whereas it hmm. looks like they're celebrating the time of his visitation. Yeah, they, they call him king. You would think that would be a, a thing to rejoice in, and, and yet Jesus weeps. Is, is this kind of dramatic contrast uh, typical of the Gospel of Luke? It's typical of Jesus, I think, more than it's typical of Luke. Mm, and Luke mm. notices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you see an oddness of his weeping in, in John's Gospel as well. The other, the, the main time that we think of when we think of Jesus weeping is at the death of Lazarus, mm-hmm. even though he knows in 15 minutes, yeah. Lazarus is going to be alive again. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jesus' perception of, of what to weep at and what to be calm at is very different than ours. Hmm. Um, hmm. So yes, you do find a lot of contrasts like this in, in Luke's gospel. Um, I, I think of the calming of the sea where the disciples are not rejoicing this time, but panicking and Jesus is completely in control um, and very calmly gets up and rebukes the storm. Bad storm. <laughs> and the storm listens to him. Yeah, heal, sit. <laughs> exactly. Be still. It's, that's the word. <laughs> yeah. That's the word in Greek is he rebukes the storm. Yeah. Um, there's also, not only with Lazarus, but in Luke's gospel, there are a couple of instances about death where Jesus is different from those around him, the widow of Nain mm-hmm. and that little girl that he raises from the dead, um, Jairus's daughter. There's, there's mourners, professional mourners sometimes, weeping mm-hmm. and wailing and making all kinds of noise. And Jesus, very nonchalant, waltzes in and says, she's just sleeping. And, um, and he just takes care of business. He's very calm. He's also going to be very calm in coming up in the passages coming up when he's at his trial and there's this huge contrast that that luke thinks i i think luke thinks it's actually funny (laughs) of the high priest of the high priest in a frenzy ripping his clothes and do we need to hear any more such blasphemy and jesus attitude through this whole thing is either silence or this this sort of reply of if you say so whatever you say He's not as bothered as we think he should be and as the high priest thinks he should be. I couldn't help thinking while you were mentioning all of those instances, if all of Jesus' disciples ran out and bought all the toilet paper, like what would his response be? Uh, or if, uh, uh, I mean, the, the, this COVID-19 stuff, it's, it's worldwide and you're dealing with it in London. We're dealing with it here in Michigan. And I mean, it's serious and people are dying and the death count is, is rising um, yeah. So I don't think Jesus takes it lightly. And no, in the storm, I think what we learn from the folks in the storm who are panicking uh-huh. is the problem isn't what they do, but how they do it. Hmm. If there's a storm around you, of course you go to Jesus. Hmm. That's got to be the right thing to do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than trying to handle it yourself or, yeah. you know, you go to Jesus and ask for help, but they don't ask for help. They go to Jesus and they panic. Don't you care that you, we're going to die? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he rebukes them as well as rebuking the storm. But it's because of their attitude. And huh. it's not because of what they do. They're right to go to him. And so these people are, in our story, 
are right to rejoice and and praise him and the king that comes in. But their attitude is the wrong attitude because they're thinking Maccabees. They're thinking military. They're thinking kick the Romans out with Mm -hmm. a sword. Mm -hmm. Their, Their attitude is almost, it's not, hooray, this is the Messiah, but hey, this is the Messiah and he's one of us. So he's going to help us. So hooray for us. Ah, it's the, it's the attitude of seeking our version of victory rather than his version of victory. Hmm. And the same thing happens, of course, in the, in Peter's confession. Peter knows that he's the Messiah, which is great. But then Jesus says, and as the Messiah, I'm going to die. And that doesn't fit peter's program peter's attitude yeah and so he says no way and jesus rebukes him again it's not it's the attitude it's the it's the looking for your victory that i think is the is the problem here it doesn't seem to me that you would think that uh jesus is weeping because he knows the cross is coming but rather jesus is weeping because the people are now proclaiming him king have no concept that the cross is necessary or something like that. Yeah, there's no there's no hint in the passage at this point that he's he's weeping with tears of blood like in Gethsemane that he's mm. thinking about the cross it's yeah. the things that he describes is how how hidden the reality mm. is from their eyes and the things that they're probably expecting in verses 41 and following. Um, the yeah. things that they're expecting just aren't going to happen. So that, I guess that's another prototypical place that Jesus weeps in the Gospels is in Gethsemane. So there will be time to weep over the struggle of going to the cross. But at this point, he's weeping over the people and how blind they are to this visitation, this moment of God's divine intervention. Yes, definitely. That contrast is part of the theme that's at the heart of the devotion for this chapter 3 as well. So I'm going to turn the page to page 32, and let me just read this devotion the way it's written. Surrounded by praise, the Savior King climbs the hill outside Jerusalem. The whole city lies magnificently before him. The temple gleams in the late afternoon sun. Shouts of joy shake the countryside, and the hero of the story weeps. He sobs. He deeply mourns the tragedy playing out in front of him. Each blessing, each shout of joy cuts like a knife. For although the crowd rightfully acclaims this king, they will utterly reject the kingdom he comes to bring. Rejecting the kingdom will ultimately lead to their destruction. The gentle heart of Jesus is pierced. He weeps over the very same people who will soon be shouting for his crucifixion. That tender compassion is exactly what Jesus feels for you. Jesus wants you to know peace, true peace. Jesus wants you to welcome your king Jesus wants his kingdom to be yours now and forever. So this humble king completes his journey. He climbs the difficult hill to the throne of the cross. He bows his meek head to be crowned with thorn. And in that sacrificial moment, the kingdom comes. Jesus takes his power and reigns for you.
The hymn we're looking at is called Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. And the lyrics were written by Henry Millman, who was a poetry professor at Oxford in the 1800s. Ride on, ride on in majesty. Hark, all the tribes Hosanna cry. O Savior meek, pursue thy road with palms and scattered garments strode. Ride on, ride on in majesty. In lowly pomp, ride on to die. O Christ, thy triumphs now begin, o'er captive death and conquered sin. Ride on, ride on in majesty. The angel armies of the sky look down with sad and wondering eyes to see the approaching sacrifice. Ride on, ride on in majesty. The last and fiercest strife is nigh. The father on his sapphire throne awaits his own anointed son. Ride on, ride on in majesty. In lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O God, thy power and reign. That's quite a hymn, quite a poem by Henry Millman. Uh, Anything that struck you as you read that hymn, Conrad? Well, again, the contrast is there, isn't it? He's (laughs) he's seen the same things in the passage that that we have. The the riding on in majesty Mm. is also a riding on to die. And then there's that mysterious and paradoxical phrase, contradictory phrase, in lowly pomp. <laughs> what is lowly pomp? I like how Millman here imagines the angel armies of the sky watching this Palm Sunday processional and uh, wondering if they're going to be called in or not. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant addition. It's sort of looking at this passage and then stepping back to mm. see what's going on in heaven as well as down here, and. And of course, it's very ironic as well, because the the disciples, if we're reading it right, the disciples are expecting an earthly army to retake Jerusalem yeah. from Rome, as has happened yeah. in the past, whereas there is this angel army that's just paused and and watching, and they too are, are seeing a mystery before their eyes. Yeah, I think it underlines Jesus' authority and kingship and also his restraint. He could call down the angel armies, and he doesn't. Uh, Again, that's one of the contrasts between thinking the things of humans and Mm. thinking the things of God. Um, And and Satan is right there at the temptation, isn't he? Isn't he? With Mm. um, you can call down armies of angels to protect you. Oh yeah, I hadn't I hadn't connected that. That's good. Hey, there is something else missing from Luke's gospel that I noticed as you read it. Uh, Luke doesn't give us palm branches, and he doesn't give us the word Hosanna, uh, although I'm, I'm most familiar with those words connected to the Palm Sunday account. Uh, yeah. is, is that right? Do you know, did you notice that too, and, what, and what's going on there? That whole bunch of imagery is very Jewish imagery coming from, in the first instance, places like Psalm 118 with entering through the gates, but also Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, not John the Baptist's father, hmm. Zechariah 9, um, talking about the donkey and on a cult. Um, all that imagery is tied up with Jewish nationalism. Um, and in fact, 
Another passage that you brought up to me is in Maccabees, the intertestamental book, which isn't part of the canon, but still is a historical book about what happened between Malachi and Matthew. And in there, Jerusalem is taken over by the world empire of that time. It's not quite Rome, it's Syria. But a a family called the Maccabees rise up to take Jerusalem back. And particularly important is when they take over the fortress that overlooks Jerusalem. And at that, the liberation of that fortress, the leader of the Maccabees at that point, Simon, the brother of Judas, Maccabees, uh, Simon strides into the citadel and the people are waving palms. We're not told that they place them down like their garments under the donkey, but they're waving palms and they're singing and rejoicing. And that's the image we have here of a military Hmm. victory again. They may be thinking David, and, and in other gospels, it's Hosanna to the son of David. Here it's king. How long in the past is that Simon Maccabeus, uh, Maccabees coming into Jerusalem like that? Yeah, it's it's so much more recent than King mm. David. I mean, King David is thousand years ago plus, right? And you've got all those kings in one and two Chronicles and one and two Kings in between before you get to even the Maccabees. The Maccabees are much more recent. This is sort of this happened in sort of your grandfather's day or your great-grandfather's day, as opposed to the birth of your nation and all Uh the way back. Okay. So uh, certainly these overtones of military victory and looking for a military leader, which seems to be maybe one of the reasons why Jesus is is weeping. I'd I'd like to go to a couple verses that I actually left out when I put this hymn journal together. Yeah, why did you do that? Well, I I did it for two reasons. One was I was really focused on the contrast, but mostly it wouldn't fit on the page otherwise. So, you know, sometimes (laughs) you have to make those editorial decisions and you accidentally end up doing theology. But, But quite honestly, they seem almost like throwaway verses to me because they're so typical to the story. And, and I'm not sure they are, so I really wanted to bring them back in here and get your input on them. So I'd like to read those two verses that I left out the first time around. Uh, Luke 19, beginning at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Conrad, what do you make of those two verses? See, I thought you left those two verses out because you know that I've been working on writing about the Pharisees <laughs> and the Sadducees and the background, and you didn't want me to talk your ear off about it. <laughs> oh, talk my ear off a little. That'll be good. <laughs> These verses are actually sort of confusing for me because mm. I don't expect the Pharisees to be objecting like this. I expect more likely, since we're talking about Jerusalem, I'd expect the Sadducees to be rejecting like this. Okay, stop right there for one second, because I think for most of my adult life, Pharisees and Sadducees, although I understood in theory there was a difference, uh, have all been grouped together in that bad guy category in 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 the Gospels. Like, whenever Jesus faces opposition, it's probably one of those bad guys like Pharisees and Sadducees. So help me understand the difference. Why is it surprising? But then what's the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, it's almost like Pharisees are sort of bad guys, and then Sadducees are even worse guys, maybe, is <laughs> the place to start. Okay. But it's not where I'm going to leave you. It's the place to start. You know that Pharisees have trouble with Jesus. 
Right. You also know that Sadducees have trouble with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then we read in the Gospels and in Acts a couple of strange things about the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. Okay. They don't believe in angels Mm -hmm. uh, and spirits and things like that. So it seems like they're even further away from Jesus than the Pharisees. And that's correct. What we don't read in the Gospels, but what we know from other sources from the first century, like Josephus, is that Pharisees and Sadducees are not only religious denominations, but also almost political parties. Hmm. Okay. The Sadducees are the status quo. The Sadducees are the elite. The Sadducees are the haves in the contrast between the haves and the Mm have-nots. And the Sadducees are based, their power base really is in the capital, in Jerusalem. Okay. And all this comes from their attitude towards the ancient law of Moses, which is as ancient to these people in the first century as the New Testament is ancient to us. And just like we read the New Testament and try and figure out now, how does this ancient law apply in our lives? Mm. So the Sadducees and Pharisees and people in the first century had to think, how does that ancient law of Moses apply in our modern lives Mm, here in the first mm -hmm, century? (laughs) Although they didn't know it was the first century. (laughs) (laughs) And the Sadducees and Pharisees represent two different ways of dealing with the ancient law. The Sadducees will say the ancient law, most of it just doesn't apply And most of our modern first century situation can't be found in the ancient law. So as a result, we do what we have to do during the week. But then the ancient law does cover temple and sacrifice and religious observance. It was the tabernacle then, but that translates fairly easily to the temple. So the the Sadducees see religion as something that you do on the weekend, not Sunday. It was still Sabbath, Saturday. But the the sacrifice and so on, that's clear what to do from the law. But how to live day to day, it's so different that we don't have that as far as the Sadducees are concerned. Now, here's the surprising thing is that the Pharisees are a lot more like us in that The Pharisees look at the ancient law and they think, well, hang on a second. Although those things don't still apply, there are probably principles underneath that law that do apply to our circumstances. So, for instance, the ancient law says that if your ox gores your neighbor's ox, here's how you pay for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People don't walk around with their oxes anymore in Jerusalem. But the Pharisees would say, you don't dismiss it like you dismiss, like a Sadducee would dismiss it and say, that doesn't apply to me. You'd look for the principle, and that is when something that I'm doing, a piece of my property, hits a piece of your property, or when my business does something bad to your business, there's a principle there that you can apply today. The Pharisees are trying to read their Bibles and somehow apply it to their daily lives. It sounds like you're saying, and, and the Sadducees are people who would, you know, sh- they show up to worship on, you know, Passover and Sabbath, but they're not concerned with living out what their scriptures said day to day. Is is that accurate? Yes, because they're 
Their scripture isn't asking them to, to live out their lives day to day. Their scripture, as far as they're concerned, is telling them what to do should they ever go into a nomadic situation where everybody walks around <laughs> with oxes that gore other oxes. And what to do on Sabbath, other than that, and what to do in temple. Other than that, it doesn't really apply. So they wouldn't say we ignore the law. Mm-hmm. It's, it's rather where there are laws that clearly apply today, we follow them. But most of that stuff in the Old Testament doesn't apply today. And they are the ones who have to deal with the power structure. They are the priests and the leading families. And so they've negotiated this uneasy peace with Rome. Mm. And they don't want to see that threatened. They don't want, the Sadducees don't want a Messiah to kick Mm. out Rome, to try and kick out Rome. They don't want anything changed. They want the status quo because they've got it okay now. And they think they're protecting protecting the nation now. So the high priest who says it's better that this one man dies than that the whole nation get in trouble, he's speaking from a very Sadduceic perspective. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are waiting for a Messiah, are hoping that things are going to change. And so it's a surprise to see them doing the objecting here. Hmm. Hmm. But here's where we go from bad guys and worse guys to changing our view about the Pharisees, I think, a little bit to sort of medium bad guys (laughs) and true bad guys. The Pharisees go to Jesus once in one other story and warn him that the power structure is after him. Maybe you remember this passage um, because Jesus calls Herod a fox in it. That's the thing that I remember of the passage. But it's actually some Pharisees, not some disciples, not some John the Baptist followers, but Pharisees come to Jesus and pretty much say, watch what you do because Herod is out to get you. And Jesus replies sort of arrogantly, you tell that fox, Uh here's what to do. The Pharisees are warning Jesus in that passage, and I wonder whether they're warning him here. Hmm. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they know what they think he, coming from Galilee, might not, that he'll get in trouble with the Sadducees if he doesn't calm his disciples. So the traditional reading of this, I think, what, what, the way I always read this, you know, it, for most of my life was the Pharisees are saying, your disciples are doing something wrong, shut them up. Mm-hmm. And Jesus saying, I'll tell you what, they're doing the right thing. And if they weren't doing the right thing, even the stones would do the right thing. Right, right. But now I'm looking at it, wondering if the Pharisees are again warning Jesus. They warn Jesus about Herod. Are they here? warning Jesus about the Sadducees. And if so, given how sad Jesus is going to be about the the misunderstanding involved in all this praise, so-called praise, I wonder if Jesus is saying something ironic in response. Hmm. I know they're going to get me in trouble. And if I silence them, even the stones will get me in trouble. Mm. Everything about creation, everything about this world misunderstands the light when the light comes to dwell in it. Hmm. And I wonder if that's what Jesus is referring to here. Hmm. So it's a very confusing passage for me, and it may be a very deeply ironic passage. 
Well, it certainly would go along with Jesus weeping here in the Gospel of Luke. If, if he was accepting and rejoicing over the praise of the people, then it would make sense to me to have him say, if you shut those people up who are doing the right thing by praising me, even these stones I created will praise me. I mean, that kind of makes sense in a almost Andrew Lloyd Webber or Jesus Christ superstar kind of way. But if Jesus is weeping over the misunderstanding of the crowds, and if the Pharisees are saying, hey, you're going to get in trouble if you don't shut these people up, Jesus very well could be saying, well, kind of like John says in his first chapter, uh, he came to his own and his own received him not. The, the darkness didn't even comprehend the light that I've come to my people, my capital, my creation, and even the creation gets me wrong. Uh, that'd be a, if, if that's right, Conrad, that'd be a really powerful image. Well, precisely. So I get that if the Pharisees are warning Jesus, he might be getting in trouble. They're not entirely bad guys. But I've still not kind of wrapped my head around why you think these Pharisees aren't nearly as bad as I think they should be. Well, we always see them arguing with Jesus. All right, so they're the bad guys, right? <laughs> well, they're arguing with Jesus. You'll find often it's the people you're closest in viewpoint to that you have the most vigorous arguments were, mm. with because the other people aren't worth arguing with. <laughs> <laughs> the Pharisees and Jesus actually want the same sort of thing hmm. when they're being true to their faith and not hypocritical. Hmm. They want the same sort of thing. The Pharisees actually are scouring the earth to find converts, but when they find them, they make them twice as fit for hell as themselves. <laughs> right. The Pharisees are looking to win back sinners to the fold because then Messiah can come. Huh. The Sadducees aren't that interested in anybody else, but the Pharisees are interested in bringing back sinners. The problem is that the way they think they're going to bring back the sinners is different to the way that Jesus wants to bring back sinners. The Pharisees, it makes much more sense, and I'm afraid you and I would be this way mm. if it wasn't for Jesus. The Pharisees want to bring back sinners by saying, look at us. Life with God is great. Life as a sinner is rubbish. Repent, leave your sinful ways, and then you can come and join us and be happy again. Hmm. Repent, and then come and join us mm -hmm. at our table, yeah. and then you can be happy again. That involves them in trying to make their own lives look good which is some of the hypocrisy that Jesus condemns. Uh -huh. But they may have started trying to do that in order to entice sinners away from their sinful life and to a religious life. But they look at a sinner and say, you've got nothing now, but if you repent, you can come to me. Change your life and live well. And then Jesus comes along. And he too is interested in converting sinners and the Pharisees are thumbs up. But Jesus sees a sinner eating on his own and Jesus goes and eats with them and says, God loves you. <laughs> and the Pharisees are pulling their hair out saying, how are we going to win this guy back if you tell him God loves him without repenting? How yeah. is he? Why will he ever repent? Yeah. And Jesus expects the love of God to overwhelm a sinner. Jesus understands the psychology of a sinner better than the Pharisees do. <laughs> the Pharisees are more calculating than most sinners. Hmm. So in a sense, they are the bad guys. 
what Phariseeism is really up to, if if you can see past the hypo- hypocritical practices, what Phariseeism is really up to is actually very close to what Jesus is up to. Wow. I know, I remember, I, th- I think the verse is in Acts, is it not, where it says a great number of the Pharisees became followers of the way. So these people that had misunderstood and even opposed Jesus will, after the resurrection, come to see things differently. Is that true at all of the Sadducees too, or are they kind of a lost cause? Well, you'll find another verse in Acts that says a great many of the priests oh. believed and came to him. And I think... Um, I think after the resurrection, the Jews had a hard time maintaining their maintaining their anger and their bad view of Jesus. Hmm. Um, and, and Peter exploits this in his speeches at the gate called Beautiful and at the Pentecost speech. It looks like he's accusing the Jews of killing Jesus, and that's not what he's doing at all. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. The important part of that that pair of statements is not you killed what nasty people you are, bad people, but rather you made this decision. The God whom you claim to follow reversed your decision. Mm. What are you Jews going to do about that? Mm. It's a very clever way of doing evangelism f- with those Jews. They couldn't deny the resurrection, and so... That what meant that their God was in favor of somebody that they voted against. They need to change their vote. They need to change their attitude. Yeah. And and th- at Pentecost and at the gate called Beautiful, each time thousands of Jews changed their minds and became Christians. You know, that feels like we've come full circle back around to the misunderstanding of the crowds and of the disciples and of Peter and even our own misunderstanding where our reaction to a situation is not necessarily Jesus' reaction. Uh, Our verdict, uh, our decision is not necessarily the decision of, of of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just wonder how that might play out even in the world today. I know... Shoot, I can be like a Pharisee if it, life with Jesus is good and I want you to have a good life and, you know, maybe you need to clean up your life a little bit before you come to Jesus. How how, how do we see that differently? But but even something like uh, what we're experiencing with this pandemic, uh, I, I've got a certain, I think, intuitive verdict about what's going on or what I think about it or what I feel about it. And I I don't know if I've thought the thought, how does Jesus evaluate this? Or what is what is God's verdict on what's going on or what's going on in my heart or my life? So that almost that almost becomes a, a moment of prayerful reflection for us to ask that our verdict would be overturned by God's verdict, that uh, our decision about Jesus or even about sinners would be replaced with Jesus' own decision about about us. I don't know, does any of that make any sense to you, or do you see any application for what we're going through today? <laughs> well, that's exactly what I would have said about mm. the application for today with with one more rider, and that is the lovely thing about his seeing the heart more than the actions is that it also means that even our actions that are wrong and stumbling, mm. when we do them out of love, he's able to accept as loving actions. Hmm. Um, 
And, and that's a beautiful thought as well in a time that's very hard and very easy for us to make mistakes and do things wrong. But yes, it's Jesus and God throughout even the Old Testament has always read the heart mm-hmm. more than the actions. So then uh, as we in our own boat to turn to Jesus and say, don't you care if we drown? Go, go to Jesus and go to Jesus with that and uh, let, let him respond the way he's going to respond. Conrad, I so appreciate the conversation today and the stuff about Pharisees I find particularly engaging because I've never thought of Jesus as someone who is close to a Pharisee. Uh, and that's, I think, an important way of helping me read the New Testament differently. But as we draw our conversation to a close, as as we move into another week of sheltering at home, uh, do you sense a next step, something maybe Jesus is inviting you personally into, you and your family, uh, this week? I think it's that continued devotion and that continued attitude of of loving him and and trying to understand how he understands things rather than we do. That sounds like a wonderful next step. Conrad, thanks for sitting with this text with us. Thank you for thank you for unpacking it. Thank you for your study and your and your teaching and your leadership. It was what a pleasure to to spend time with you today. And with you. That was Conrad Gumpf from the London School of Theology, our guest on the podcast today. Conrad's got a wonderful book called Jesus Asked. You can find it on Amazon, or he also reads it online. I'll share a link in the description of the podcast. You'll find this and other Next Step resources at www.findmynextstep.org. And today's episode was made possible in part by the generosity of Next Step patrons. For three U.S. dollars or three pounds sterling a month, you can help support us as we help people take a next step following Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us today. As this Palm Sunday, we invite Jesus to overturn our verdict of our own sin, our verdict of the world around us, our view of who Jesus is and what he came to do, and replace that with his understanding of who we are now and forever. We'll see you next time on Next Step Press.